an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello, and welcome to the Life After God podcast. This is episode 65, and I'm your host, Ryan Bell. I have so much good stuff to share with you this week, I can hardly stand it. I had a really amazing conversation with Jessica Wilbanks a couple of weeks ago, and I'm excited to share that with you today. She is the author of the recent book, When I Spoke in Tongues, A Story of Faith and Its Loss. But before we get to that, a few announcements. This past week, I started a new Facebook group for members of Life After God. I'll tell you a little bit more about how to become a member in just a moment, but first, let me tell you what this new group is about. As I mentioned a few weeks ago in my New Year episode, I have been craving a community of people that want to go beyond non-theism. In a way, it's what Life After God has always been about, beyond what I am no longer into moving into what I am now and what I'm becoming uh, and what we are becoming together. I'm interested in what we can say with some degree of confidence about what a life after God or a life without God means. And I'm also interested in what it means to live with an irreducible uncertainty, uh, which I think we often shy away from and the humanist community is often reluctant to address. This new group will feature uh, a lot more interaction from me, personal interaction with me, um, unique conversations with some of our podcast guests, uh, some Ask Me Anything sessions with our guests and other uh, special people from the community, live video hangouts, and, and so much more. Think of it as an online learning community where we can share deeply about our questions, the challenges that we're facing, and the hopes that we have for our future. If you'd like to join that group, all you need to do is become a member of Life After God. A member is someone who's contributing $5 per month or more on the Patreon page. For about the price of a latte per month, you can know that you're supporting this podcast and participating in the community that is emerging from it. That being said, I understand that for some, even $5 per month is more than they can manage. And I don't want anyone to be excluded from membership due to financial hardship. So if you can't afford $5 per month, just uh, message me. You can email me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org and let me know your situation and we'll work out a sliding scale for you. Additionally, if you'd like to become a member of Life After God in, in a different way other than using Patreon, we can work that out too. Just email me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org and we will uh, work out a plan. I also want to give a quick shout out to another project I'm working on related to my day job at the Secular Student Alliance. We've just launched a podcast as well. It actually launches today, Monday, February the 4th, and I'm super excited about it. It's called Secular Student Life, and you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, or by going to secularstudents.org slash podcast. I'll put a link, of course, in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out and learn what's happening with secular students on campuses all across the United States. 
This podcast is made possible by our members and patrons. I want to give a quick shout out to the new patrons this week, Don, Alan, Gretchen, Stephen, Lauren, and Meg. I'm so grateful for your support and membership, which makes this podcast and everything about life after God possible. Special thanks to Uber patron Jeff Straka for his extraordinary generosity now and over the past several years. If this podcast adds value to your life and you'd like to help it keep going and reaching more people, I'd like to invite you to become a member. All you have to do is go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. You can contribute any amount you like from as little as $1 to as much as you think this podcast is worth to you as a recurring monthly donation. The membership level starts at $5 a month, and at that point, you'll be able to join the Facebook group where members discuss podcast episodes, share their experiences, and support one another, give feedback about the podcast and future episodes, and a whole lot more. So I hope you'll consider becoming a member today. And with that, let's get to the main attraction. My guest today is Jessica Wilbanks. She is the author of a new book, When I Spoke in Tongues, A Story of Faith and Its Loss published by Beacon Press. Jessica grew up in poverty in rural Maryland. The Pentecostal church of her childhood formed the foundation of her young life, and she has spent the years from her teens until today unraveling those experiences and trying to understand the strange attraction of fundamentalist spirituality and religion. Jessica received her MFA in creative nonfiction from the University of Houston and is an active member of the literary community in the city. She teaches writing workshops for InPrint, WriteSpace, Grackle and Grackle, Writers League of Texas, and Boldface, the University of Houston's annual conference for emerging writers. Her essays have received a Pushcart Prize, the Wabash Nonfiction Prize from Sycamore Review, the Vandermeer Nonfiction Prize from Ruminate Magazine, and Ninth Letters Annual Creative Nonfiction Award. Her work has appeared in The Guardian. Salon, Houston Chronicle, Sojourners, The Rumpus, Long Reads, and Lit Hub, and has received notable mentions from Best American Essays and Best American Non-Required Reading. She was recently selected as a finalist for the National Pen Literary Award in Journalism. Here now is my conversation with Jessica Wilbanks. Jessica Wilbanks, thank you so much for being on the Life After God podcast. It's so good to be here. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, it's. Uh, I've been really uh, looking forward to this. I've um, I've recently finished your book. It took me far too long because of so many other, you know, books I was reading and work and all the rest. But also because I just found it so enjoyable. I was kind of savoring it. I don't know if you read that way or not. Um, but I, I tend to read lots of books all at once. But I also t- I just love. Um, sort of enjoying each word, you know, and so yes, I was, uh, yeah. I was kind of going slow through it. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, that that means a lot. I think, you know, when I was when I was writing it, I, um, I, I think I was really thinking of a particular audience, which is folks who have had the same experience as me of being such devout believers, and then you know deciding for whatever reason to leave the faith. So when I walked away from the church, you know, which was in, which was when I was a teenager in the, in the mid nineties, there were very little models for people who had figured out a way to 
be in relationship with their past um, and and figure out a way to process the experience they had of being a believer and then walking away. Um, and it feels like that's something people are talking a lot more about now. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, um, you know, your book read in some ways like a novel, you know, which I, I, I mean as a compliment. Like I, it, it <laughs> sure. had that kind of um, sort of just narrative pull. Um, and I, you know, then I looked at your bio and you have an MFA and creative nonfiction. I was like, that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, <laughs> thanks for putting your heart into it. I could tell that you really, um, you didn't hold back. And um, I think part of the complexity of it is what I, I really want to ask you about today. Yeah. Um, but for those that haven't read it, let's, let, I want to start back a little bit in the beginning and take just a couple of minutes. And, and obviously you wrote a book length version of this, but uh, take just a couple of minutes and describe what your earliest religious memories were like um, sure, sure. for the for audience. Yeah. So um, I, I don't remember a time from when I was a child that I don't remember a moment when I was really introduced to the church. It was just, you know, something around me like oxygen. Um, so my family, um, my parents converted to Christianity um, when they were dating and um, that was kind of in the, the late 70s, uh, the beginning of kind of the, the charismatic movement. Um, they were born again in a backyard in suburban Virginia. And we, I have some early memories of um, attending an Assemblies of God congregation. And then when I was about, I want to say maybe seven or eight years old, we moved to Southern Maryland, um, where, where I lived for you know, my elementary years. And we attended Rock Rock Church. So um, folks might be familiar with Bishop John Jimenez, who is a very charismatic pastor. Um, his headquartered church was in Hampton, Virginia. Um, he and his wife, Ann Jimenez, um, co-led that congregation. And then our church, Rock Church of Southern Maryland, was one of the first churches that um, uh, the first churches that was seeded, you know, after, um, the success of, hmm. um, the headquarters congregation in Hampton. So, yeah, I remember growing up, you know, in this, in this very tight knit community, um, extremely conservative, although, you know, I didn't really differentiate liberal and conservative at that point. It was hmm. just the way that life was. Right. Um, yeah. And, and the church was, you know, spirit filled. So folks spoke in tongues. We were slain in the spirit. There were prophecies and those prophecies were translated. So that was just what I knew, um, until, until I was a teenager. It's amazing how, you know, that those growing up, I, I talk about it the same way, totally different experience. Like we were not yeah. Pentecostal, but you know, when I'm trying to explain my former faith to say people that have grown up atheist all their life, I'm, you know, constantly saying like, this is as if, you know, someone was trying to explain gravity to you when you were five <laughs> years old, you'd be like, it's just normal. It's just what you have, you know, or, you know, or if you met someone who didn't have gravity, you'd be like, what does that even mean? You know, I, totally. <sighs> I, no, I love the gravity metaphor. I, I always think of this. Um, there's this famous graduation speech by David Foster Wallace. Mm, mm -hmm. um, what is water? And yeah. he talks about how fish don't think of what surrounds them as water. It's just, you know, it, it's life. like what we would think of as air. It's life. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons why it's so traumatic to leave because, you know, in many ways you don't realize when you're, you know, first walking away, how deeply your life is permeated by every aspect of this faith. So even today, you know, when I do the dishes, 
I hum hymns under my breath. And my husband gives me a funny look, but you know, it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to drain all of that out of your life. Um, you know, and I don't know about you, but even though I've, you know, haven't identified as um, a fundamentalist Christian in many, many years. So I don't know about you, but, um, the way that my mind operates now, I think out of many years of being so immersed in that worldview of things are either, you know, uh, of the Lord or, or of the world, um, I find myself sometimes being a lot more judgmental about things than, than I should be. So for instance, um, you know, if something happens in my life, I'm kind of quick to interpret it as, ah, oh, this is terrible or this is great, you know, and there's mm. not as much gray area. Um, and that's something that I'm kind of actively working on, you know, as an adult. Right. So your, you know, your experience was growing up in it, but your your parents, you know, they converted to it. Um, and you say at one point in the early part of your story how your parents, your father in particular, um, perhaps embraced the faith and this particular type of Christianity that he did out of a desire for some kind of moral certainty or something solid that he could grasp onto. Could you, could you say a little bit more about, about that? Because I know it's, it's interesting to me how, you know, our experience like yours and mine of growing up in it, that's sort of one way of engaging with faith, but other times, you know, to our amazement, people choose this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it, it makes sense to me in retrospect because um, both of my parents had a lot of pain and loss in their early childhood. So um, my my dad's father died of a heart attack when he was six years old and his mother married multiple times, married some pretty bad guys, you know, mm-hmm. and and he he never really had anything resembling, you know, some sort of you know, secure home as a kid. They moved around a lot. Um, they didn't have, you know, a hometown that they could go back to. There, there weren't close relationships with extended family. My mom had a similar situation. So her father um, passed away when she was 16 hmm. after a long period of separation. So, you know, when I think about my parents, um, they were, you know, in their um, in their early years, you know, my mom was in her, her mid twenties. My dad was a little bit older. Um, and they were at a moment, you know, that was in the very late seventies, um, where society seemed so tumultuous, you know, they Mm -hmm. didn't have, they didn't have those family relationships to kind of keep them anchored. Um, my dad was kind of a transient worker. He was a bricklayer who kept getting fired because of his temper and I think that experience for them of meeting this this pastor and being welcomed into this community that where there seemed like there was a lot of unconditional love, um, I think that was incredibly attractive to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially, you know, in those, my mom um, uh, was working before she gave birth to me. And when she had me, she decided she wanted to stay home, which for her um felt like a really countercultural choice and something that she was judged for. So I think being part of this community where, you know, there was a firm belief that a woman's place was in the home, she felt accepted. Yeah, so it's interesting. Yeah. 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 It's a way of flipping the script a little bit. I, you know, I, I wonder as I was reading your book and also hearing you talk about it right now that the seventies really were, you know, on a macro scale, very disruptive. Um yeah. And in, in some really, obviously, in some positive ways, coming right off of uh, civil rights, the women's mm-hmm. movement. Um, mm-hmm. And and so for a lot of people, especially people in the in, I would say, 
the norm of the United States, sort of the the status quo, those that benefited from the status quo probably felt very upended by this in a similar way that I think a lot of people feel upended by the ongoing social changes in our culture today and the way that people reach for something, not to minimize it in any way, but just to say like, this is um, a way of, you, you know, maybe some people reach for alcohol and other people reach for something much healthier in some ways, yeah. um, which is a community of people that love them and support them and, and approve of their sort of life choices and sort of validate their their decisions. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And another dynamic that I see as kind of really powerful in in the community where I grew up is was that, you know, the 80s were a period of you know, uh, there was a lot of wealth that was coming. Mm. Um, there was this, you know, renewed emphasis, like as women entered the workforce, um, there were, you know, Murphy Brown was a sitcom that was really popular. And there was a, this big cultural conversation about, like, and the kind of binary that I see that I think my parents saw was, you're either a traditional family, you know, um, where there's, you know, children are cared for and children's experiences centered in the family, or you throw out your values and, you know, climb the corporate ladder and accumulate wealth. My parents were really trying to, I think, hold space for, for family, you know, and, and I think I have mixed feelings in retrospect, not so mixed feelings, you know, I think it was kind of an unfortunate decision that, that created this binary about family values versus career and education. But um, I think for them, you know, what they were trying to do in in going toward the church and becoming really part of the evangelical community was, you know, create the firm, stable family structure that they didn't have when they were growing up. Right. Um, my mom was a latchkey kid and really resented it. And she just couldn't understand, you know, why any woman would, you know, choose to enter the workforce. So, yeah, it's it's really hard to, for me at least, to separate their decision to become Christian with, you know, uh, separate it from the larger cultural conversation. And it was kind of a reaction against that. Right. Yeah. And and then so to, to like move to the next step of your story um, in your, you're in high school and, and of course this is every young person's first sort of initial step out of the nest as it were. Um, you know, making friends and experiencing the world in a more adult way. Um, and you, you come, you say in, in the book, you come to this point um, when you're in high school that you're in church and you have this kind of anxiety moment about what's going on. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever sat through one of these worship services before, but um, <laughs> this was the, it was a dedication service for Rock Church of Baltimore. Um and so Bart Pierce, who's a who's an evangelical minister, was was the head of that congregation. And there were sermons, there was singing, there were different presentations. But during a long period of this worship service, where um, the music was playing, there was this very um, kind of worshipful atmosphere that was created. I was looking around that congregation and you know, this was a community that I always felt part of. Um, I always felt like I belonged. I felt that, you know, we were the same people. And at that point I had, I had been going to high school. I had gone to, it was my first time really out in the world. You know, I was homeschooled for a period. Um, and then I lobbied my parents hard, um, (laughs) to let me apply for a scholarship to a private school, which was secular. 
Um, and, and I just started to feel so separate from the people in that congregation. And it was the first time that I had ever kind of looked at what happened in the church with judgment. You know, I, I saw all these people who were working class, who lived somewhat hand to mouth, um, who, who were uh, separate from the cult, the larger culture. And I just didn't want anything to do with it. You know, mm. I was, I was ashamed of them. I was ashamed of the way people were dancing enthusiastically to the music and swaying and, you know, lifting their hands. And, you know, at that moment, um, I remember I wasn't brave enough to say, I'm, you know, I'm, um, I don't believe in God, but I, you know, what I thought was, you know, I'm not going to have anything to do with this anymore, regardless of whether God really exists or not. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to get away from this. Hmm. And that was, that was a huge step for me because at that point, you know, I hadn't even uh, said a swear word before, you know, I was just, (laughs) I was so, I was afraid to, you know, I was afraid I had grown up with that purity culture but I just didn't believe it anymore, you know, and I, I, I wasn't able to enter into it, you know, without that kind of self-consciousness. Um, so yeah, it was a big, it was a big moment for me. And from that point forward, I never, I never really, you know, went back. Although I think I really went on a journey of examining some of my reactions and realizing that, you know, the shame that I had for, you know, the place that I came from and and the faith that I once believed in, you know, that was something I really worked with over, over the next 20 years or so. Right. It took you a long time to get through the rest of that. And I was going to say, like a lot of times when I hear atheists talk about their deconversion stories or their experiences leaving religion, it's sort of like, you know, a, a typical pattern is, um, you know, my early faith was beautiful. It was embracing. It was loving. It was freeing and liberating. And then it became suddenly suffocating. Yeah. Um, and then I left it. And it was one long trajectory of, you know, ongoing freedom and liberation, you know, and it was <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. but um, what I, what I pick up from your story that resonates so deeply with me um, and so many other people that I talk to is that your, your leaving Christianity was only the beginning of a, sort of a process of really coming to terms with what that all meant. And it wasn't just a, a beautiful, like <laughs> no. wonderful, wonderful experience of liberation, was it? No, not at all. And I thought it would be, you know, I, you know, my story for myself as a teenager and in my early 20s was, you know, I grew up, you know, working class, I, I was, was a believer, I left all that behind, I went on to college, I, you know, um, kind of climbed the ladder. Um, but that didn't happen at all. So, you know, my first big victory, which was, was getting out of my hometown. I right. um, got a scholarship to a private college um, and, you know, happily packed all my stuff and, you know, went to college, had a wonderful time, partied a little more than I should have. My first year of college, I became incredibly depressed and I found myself missing my family much more than I expected to. So I have three brothers who I'm, who I'm very close to. And, and I, you know, even though everything I'd done up until that point was about getting out. All I wanted, you know, that first year of college was to go back. And I think that's when I really grappled with the fact that, you know, I was trying to cut myself off from my roots. And ironically, what ended up happening, um, so I developed an eating disorder, I spent some time in a treatment center for women with anorexia. Um, And then I ended up 
spending uh, the next semester home with my family. You know, my the my college, you know, decided that I needed a little bit more time to heal before coming back. So I ended up, you know, uh, going back there. Um, and I think that was the beginning of um, my reconciliation process and figuring out, okay, you know, um, how, how do I come to embrace this new philosophy about belief? So, you know, not being a believer, but how do I remain in relationship with my family? And how do I refrain from, you know, judging people who, who didn't leave. Um, and I think that's what, you know, when I think about where um, conversations are right now about um, uh, leaving faith and um, there's this incredible dialogue amongst ex-evangelicals right now, which I've been following closely. Right. I think that's one piece that's a little different about my story is that, um, you know, I, I left a long time ago. And since then, you know, I, I remember that grief. I remember that anger but but I think I'm in a very different place now. Um, I'm really interested in hearing more stories about what it's like to remain haunted by faith, you know, rather than have that victorious departure from it. Yeah, I think that's what resonates a lot with me, too, and what drives me in the work I'm doing with the life, with life After God and, and even the work I'm doing with, with Secular Student Alliances. You know, the, the, the question of faith and the 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 interesting stories and the mystery around it and and I think people's di- different experiences with it it's not linear and and uniform and um and that's it's just fascinating to me I I, I try to take it out of some I mean there, there's clearly forms of religion that strike me as either wrong or right um, in this kind of binary way but there's also a big part of it that's just interesting to me and it speak you know speaks to my um, curiosity and that kind of leads us naturally into the next thing I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, about the way that your departure from faith and your grappling with it in college and after college and just your ongoing sort of attempt to understand your background and where you were at that moment led you on this global journey to, to sort of get to the, to the root of it. If you could, is that, was there a root and could you find it? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was very unexpected. So I, um, I was in, I was in graduate school at the time, and I think I was kind of casting about for, you know, a, a project. So I had been, I, I had gone to um, a MFA program. Um, I had entered in fiction. I was writing stories. And I kept finding myself circling around, you know, the the community where I grew up, um, circling around my faith, and I hadn't written about that in years. You know, I had. I had really, I thought I had left all of that behind me. And um, I remember getting this wonderful piece of advice from this professor in my creative writing program who said, you know, a writing project that will sustain you over years, you know, a, a book project, pick something that you have very mixed feelings about, <laughs> you know, something where oh, wow. the writing process will be a, a journey of discovery as opposed to simply, you know, um, answering a question that is very clear to you. So I started, you know, I started thinking a lot about my childhood faith. I started doing research into the history of Pentecostalism. And I was just amazed. I was amazed at the roots of it. I was amazed at the way the faith has grown, um, particularly in places like Southern Nigeria. So long story short, I ended up getting a grant to travel to Southern Nigeria and one of the one of the questions I was really working on at that point was um, 
whether or not the faith actually had roots in Yoruba culture. Um, so there's many scholars that point out that a lot of the practices that we see in Pentecostalism, so um, from kind of the oral nature of the faith and uh, the story-based sermons and the use of percussion instruments and worship services and the process of speaking in tongues and then <laughs> having those, you know, that language translated, a lot of that shows up in, in traditional Yoruba practice. So I kind of devised this research project. Um, I went to Nigeria to answer this question, you know, and, and I imagined that I would do some nonfiction writing about that. And what ended up happening was for the first time, you know, in 20 years, I was sitting through lengthy Pentecostal services. And anyone who has <laughs> ever who has ever done that knows that, you know, the clock just does not run out. You know, I remember <laughs> I remember being a kid and and the pastor said, OK, it's one o'clock. You know, usually we would go home now, but but the spirit is moving and, you know, we're going to be here for a while. Oh, so boy. Like, <laughs> I know you so, described I mean, that one church service in, in southern Nigeria going, you know, from like eight in the morning until like midnight or something. It was yeah. Just like unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really something. And, and it really, you know, I I had to make a decision, you know, when I was when I was doing that project am I going to ignore all the emotional responses that I'm having to sitting through these services again? You know, I felt <laughs> like I was, felt like I was 10 years old again. Um, and I, I thought about all these things I hadn't thought about in years, you know, everything from the role of that pastor, you know, this charismatic man who, you know, has the congregation in the palm of his hand, you know, during these, during these services, um, this, this message about the importance of, you know, showing your faith in God by giving large offerings to the church. Mm. So all of this was just kind of swimming through my head. And I, it took me, it took me a while to decide that that was actually a really important um, story to tell, you know, um, the journey that I had gone on. So that, that surprised me um, in the writing process. Yeah, no. And I think it's, um, it's so interesting because there are these two big movements in your book. And I, I think I was so fascinated by the story of Maryland and, you know, even just the descriptions of your farm and the sort of, I, I find it's difficult to write about personal experiences of say, for example, poverty or, or fear or abuse or, or anything like that without sounding sort of whiny and, um, like poor me and all of that. And, and, and yet you just, you know, this kind of rich description, this very textured description of what your life was like. And I was so into it. And then all of a sudden you're in Africa and I was like, wow, this is like a whole nother book, you know, this is like a whole nother story. And it was, and yet they're connected, obviously. I mean, you're the, yeah. you're the connecting piece and, um, and just how our, our narratives drive us so far at times, yeah, uh, yeah. to explore, um, who we are and what what other people are like and how we're similar and how we're different. At the end of the book, you, you know, you sort of come home from that experience and, you know, as any, I think, interesting creative writing, you leave it open, you know, um, which I, which I think is, is fantastic, you know, because it allows us to think about the reader, to think about where he or she is and um, in this story, how would you, I guess, how would you describe your relationship with religion and faith and spirituality today? Are they, are these different things, religion and spirituality for you? Or 
Um, and do you have different feelings about them? So at this point, I don't identify as a spiritual person or a religious person. So mm. I don't attend any kind of religious community. I don't have a spiritual practice. Um, but a couple of comments about that. So, you know, even though I'm not part of a religious community, I think I still have the urge to be with people in, in, in some meaningful way. Um, mm -hmm. I think for me, that's been one of the hardest pieces about leaving the church is, you know, I, I have this deep urge. <laughs> so my, I have friends who, who make fun of me because whenever I sing in unison with a big group of people, whether it's, you know, the anthem at a baseball game or <laughs> Christmas carols, I always, kind of my eyes well up with tears, you know, because I think there's just something so beautiful about being with people and, you know, raising your voice and song. And, and I think that in a nutshell, you know, that's what I miss about that, that spiritual community. But, you know, I haven't found that, you know, in any secular setting. So maybe that's something in my future. But the other thing that I, I think about um, that I never thought about until I had finished the book. Um, so I got into a conversation on Twitter with someone who was talking about um, how inspired they had been when they were Pentecostal about this kind of mystical, you know, spirit-filled process in which you know the Holy Spirit enters you and you know you you sing in tongues and in, in a church service, and how they were really um, curious about whether or not there was a way to remain Pentecostal, but to um, throw out some of the traditional components of, you know, purity culture and, and that sort of thing. And as I was in this kind of Twitter dialogue, I realized that, um, you know, from when I was a kid, I, I had really loved the aspect of Pentecostal faith that was kind of that topsy-turvy component. So, you know, um, the idea of worshiping um, a messiah who was had no earthly wealth or power, you know, mm, and mm -hmm. and I love, you know, still today, I, I love hearing stories about um, the way that Christianity can be used for purposes of liberation, you know, liberation theology and, you know, all the stories of folks who um, are led through their Christian faith to, you know, to a position of kind of servant leadership, you know. Um, so, so I've been thinking about how in my own life, um, it's actually through my through my creative writing work that I think I've developed a sort of spiritual practice. So um, I, I think writing is one place where I try to come to the page without any preconceptions. Um, I, I um, focus on images. I focus on sensory detail. And in that process of, you know, writing and putting words on the page, I make discoveries, you know, and I mm. think there's some there's some way that that reminds me of the creative process of, you know, Pentecostalism that I used to know as a kid. And I think if I didn't have that, I might be more likely to seek out some kind of replacement for that, you know, right. some sort of spiritual practice. But in a way, writing has become kind of a a meditation process for me and a way of um, kind of building something from nothing. Um, so I think that's a really interesting component for folks who, who leave a faith that included that mystical and spiritual element. You know, they might find that in artistic practice um, on the other side of faith. I think that's really in, a, a, an amazing insight. And I've, I've sometimes thought that it's not 
you know, it's sort of like maybe not an accident of linguistics that the spirit in the religious sense and the the idea that we talk about the human spirit, yeah. you know, aren't so different. I mean, part of my um, sort of understanding of religion globally, you know, over the long stretches of history, um, and certainly this isn't, I mean, I, I picked this up from Feuerbach and and Freud and others that, you know, that, that religion or belief in God is, is largely a, a kind of projection of our desires and our wishes for, you know, a uh, either, you know, life after death or immortality or ethics of some kind of kind of a lofty notion of ethics that we project onto a large screen. And, yeah. and I think this idea of the human spirit, you know, we're distrustful of it, rightly so, because it can lead us so many different places and yeah. e- emotions being what they are, they can be great sources of positive inspiration, or they can drag us down to the depths. And, you know, and so it is, like you say, this very topsy-turvy thing. Totally, totally. And I think, you know, when I was, when I was researching some of the, some of the early days of Pentecostalism, I mean, that creative energy is just all over the place. Like there's this wonderful story that I just couldn't get out of my head. I, I included it in my book, about this young woman, um, Jenny Glassy. I don't know if you remember that section, but you know, um, it's this story about how in the 19th century, she was 17 years old. Um, she grew mm-hmm. up on a farm in Missouri. Um, this traveling minister comes to town and she decides to run up to the altar and you know, give her heart to the Lord. And interestingly, um, she so she went back home and she says that she has a vision of God appearing to her and telling her that she needs to go to West Africa. And she's this, she's the 17 year old farm girl from Missouri. She's never been outside of Missouri, much less, you know, um, to another country. And she, she managed to get part of the way there. So she um, ended up kind of teaming up with this minister who had converted her to Christianity um, and going, making it all the way to Liverpool. And she had a lot of other adventures, but I was just thinking about how, you know, what else in at that particular time period could have could a young woman have embraced to get herself out of her hometown, you so know, and to see yeah. the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's easy to forget about some of those more revolutionary, you know, components of of early Pentecostalism, like for instance, the multiracial element. You know, there were very few spaces mm. at that time where folks of different races could gather together and, you know, um, really relate to one another, you know, as, as peers, you know, given all these, all the, all the horrific racial policies in place at the time. Um, so yeah, there's, it's, it's really interesting and it's not as cut and dry, you know, Mm. as I thought it was when I walked away at 15. Although I think, you know, where I've kind of landed is, you know, I'm glad that we live in a society now where, we don't, young women have many opportunities to, you know, have that same sort of, same sort of um, freedom. Um, and, you know, people of different backgrounds and different racial identities don't need the church, you know, as a place to gather. Um, we can do that in a lot of different ways. Right. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Because society has evolved. It makes me think of, I grew up Seventh-day Adventist and, you know, in the Seventh-day Adventist church, um, they have uh, a prophet, a prophetess, actually, Ellen White, who um, is a key part of, and her husband, the key power of the founding of the church in the middle part of the 19th century. And, you know, growing up, it was always, you know, Ellen White said this and Ellen White said this, and you had to follow these instructions. They weren't the Bible, but pretty close. 
And, you know, it was everything from how women should dress to what you should eat to, you know, the fact that mustard and caffeine (laughs) were irritants and you shouldn't eat or drink them. And like, and, and I was so like, and, and how we were supposed to keep the Sabbath and the things you weren't allowed to do. And it was just this oppressive thing. And it wasn't until much later that it dawned on me that, you know, here was a woman in the 19th century, middle 19th century who basically founded a church and then went on to found several medical facilities, yeah. traveled yeah. to Australia, founded a medical school and a seminary in Australia, you know, as a basically with a second grade education. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah. it's a, you know, even though the output of what she did was kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, a little <laughs> yeah. dubious, but just the fact that she was empowered to, um, to do all of those things as, yeah. a, as a woman at a time when women were still really just not, not even able to vote. Yeah. 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 I, I, I totally agree. And that was something that I really saw in, in Southern Nigeria as well. So there's just a fascinating history of, um, the evolution of, of Christianity in that region. So, you know, originally, um, missionaries from Britain came over and, you know, it was this very colonial impulse that led to the spread of Christianity And then there was an interesting moment where um, there was a malaria outbreak. So these British missionaries um, were driven back to, you know, uh, Britain because of this malaria outbreak. And all of these new Nigerian um, converts to Christianity um, ended up having a lot of space to develop kind of the African independent churches at that point. Um, And there was just so much, like if you look at the way that churches developed and the way that, um, you know, far from those original colonial colonialist impulses, which said, you know, we need to, you know, sing in English, we need to read (laughs) English Bibles, you know, you can't be a Christian unless you're wearing Western clothes. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this really, really beautiful um, kind of um, evolution of some of Christian beliefs, um, but with very much, you know, um, Nigerian culture. So yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I think in some ways, you know, Pentecostal beliefs became this, um, became this, um, kind of blank slate in some way that, that folks were able to, you know, put their own cultural, um, beliefs on. And, you know, it's just a shame, you know, I think, it's a human tendency that, you know, we go toward control and we go toward um, kind of uh, tying up some of these belief systems a little bit and, you know, decreasing access. But in some ways, you know, Pentecostalism has um, created a lot of space for people who might otherwise be marginalized, like women and and you know, back in back in the nineteenth century, like people of color as well. Yeah, and I, it, it does occur to me too, and I think it's worth mentioning that this type of open source religion and spirituality has also allowed for you know powerful men to come in and get very wealthy off the you know impulse to give money to these you know causes, and at least here in the United States, the prosperity Absolutely. gospel and. The way that it's sort of kept people in their place as well is is kind of, um, and I, I think this just goes to what we were saying before about the double edged sword. I mean, this yeah, kind of open yeah. open source, um, kind of um, almost like a a template onto which you could write your own sort of spiritual story. Exactly. Um, could go could and and I think this is true of all kinds of religion. Like right, like yeah. so yeah. you know even more traditional you know Western Christianity 
can be the source for, you know, say building hospitals and homeless shelters and um, helping children get through school and so forth. And it could also lead to hate crimes, you know, so it's just whatever's in the person's heart kind of just (laughs) comes out in whatever their expression of their religion is, it seems to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's especially true in Pente- with Pentecostalism because there's no barrier for entry. You know, right, um, in, another, yeah. in another religious tradition, you might not be able to have a church, you know, or get a pulpit unless you, you know, have get, get a certain degree or unless you're voted in by a board of directors. And in, in Pentecostal communities, all you need is the word from the Lord, mm. um, which on one hand, you know, opens up space for people who don't have, you know, traditional credentials, and that can be exciting. On the other hand, there's no checks and balances. Um, so once, you know, that pastor is in place and has a following, he he or she, you know, because in, in some cases, um, there are female Pentecostal um, evangelists mm. as well. Um, it, things things can go things can go very bad. You know, they can um, the pastor of the church that I grew up in had a terrible temper and um, had a lot of blind spots um, and and had total freedom to um, exile certain members of the community who weren't you know submitting to his will. And in some cases, um, that can go uh, go even even more badly. You know, in in Nigeria, I. Um, have a chapter where I write about a phenomenon in which um, there's Pentecostal pastors who accuse children of being witches. Um, and that's certainly something, you know, that we see sometimes in in the U.S. as well. You know, I grew up thinking that demonic spirits were real. And it's a very easy excuse, you know, if you don't like what someone is doing or saying um, to accuse them of being literally possessed by the devil. And that's yeah. incredibly dangerous. Really? Um, yeah. So yeah. Tr- So true. Yeah, I know we're kind of coming to the end of, of our of our time. And um, I just really, again, so grateful. I think every time someone tells their story, especially in such a compelling way, it gives somebody other people something to hang on to or some hooks, maybe um, where they can sort of um, kind of relate their own journey to someone else's. And I think one of the powerful things about the podcast medium is that you know, we can tell these stories and people can hear echoes of their own experience in them. Um, and I, I just wonder in closing, if, if you, as you look back over your journey, and of course your journey is only partway finished, of course, you have many more experiences ahead of you, but at this point in your experience, I mean, how would you, what would you say to people who are listening right now who are kind of where you were when you were like 15 and you were just at that place of going, I don't think any, this is true, yeah. but I'm scared of what that might mean. Yeah, I, I think the biggest the biggest thing that I would say is to be gentle with yourself. You know, I've 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 been um, part of a lot of these Facebook groups that have popped up um, for people who have left um, religious traditions. And I think there's there's such a mix of emotions when you first start questioning. So you know, many people feel anger um, because it seems like everything they've done up until, you know, the point when they walked away from the church is a waste. You know, they look back at um, decisions that they've made. Maybe they they got married when they were very young and, and it, it didn't work out. Maybe they, you know, didn't um, get the educational opportunities that they now wish they had. Or maybe they just 
um, you know, more in the fact that they didn't have all these experiences that they could have had, you know, as a young person. So that kind of anger is, is completely understandable. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but I think that, you know, as much as we would like to think that belief is an on and off switch and, you know, one day those doubts pile up to the point that you decide to walk away. Um, I, I, I wish folks could see who are at the beginning of that journey that, that it's, that it's nothing like that on and off switch. You know, you will have moments where, where you mourn what you had, where Mm. you mourn the relationships and, and the ease of, you know, relationships with family and loved ones, um, where you wish you could go back, you know, to get the support or to get, um, you know, some of that community back. But I think it's like any process of grief, you know, when we lose, when we, when we lose someone or something that's very dear to us, um, it takes a long time to cycle through all of those emotions and to feel that loss. Mm. Um, and I think probably the biggest piece of advice I would have is, you know, don't do it by yourself, you know, figure out a way to, Mm. um, let some of those feelings out. And there's a lot of great ways to do that. I know that you, you, um, through life after God work with some people who need some support, you know, just processing some of that. Um, right. There's also some great communities now on social media, um, where folks can, can hear about what other people's experiences are and get advice about how to recreate a community that's going to give them that support. But I think that's what, like, that's what happened to me in college. Like I, I thought I could do it all by myself and I thought I could immediately turn off all of those feelings of grief and pain and um, ended up not being able to do that. And, but now, you know, even, even with that behind me, I think it was a vital part of my journey. Um, And I think that, that it's really important to, to give yourself time, you know, to go through that process and, and really begin to develop the trust in yourself. um, Because often, those of us who have come from these kinds of faith traditions um, don't don't have that kind of um, trust in ourselves and our own decisions. So yeah, yeah. that's huge. Yeah, I mean, in fact, many of us taught to distrust ourselves. You know, absolutely. And then when absolutely. you when you lose your faith, then you've really got nothing. You don't have God. You don't have yourself. So you're like really out there. Yeah. I remember yeah. I remember speaking to a, another young woman named Brooke um, on the podcast. Um, and she was talking about just, yeah, like learning how to even know what a good choice felt like. Absolutely. You know, or like, a, like she was talking about how, like she was choosing friends really badly, like people that were like yeah. bad for her in multiple different ways and, um, and not really just not having the tools to know, yeah. is this a person, a, a person I should trust or not? Yeah. And for people Absolutely. that didn't grow up in that environment, they're like, how could you not know? Like, that's just an intuition, right? That you get when yeah. you kind of grow up. And, and she was like, no, that's, I didn't learn that. Yeah. 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 It's such a good point. And, and something that I wish more people talked about. Um, and the other piece for me too, is I, I don't know if you see this in your work sometimes or, or in your own journey, but I think there was also a side of me when I walked away from the church that said, okay, now I'm, you know, now I'm damned. I'd always been taught that folks who who backslid, um, who who rejected Christianity, were evil. You know, were on the side of the devil now. Right, exactly. um, and I think that part of me, even though I didn't intellectually believe that, you know, when it, when I left the church, I think some part of me subconsciously believed that and said, okay, you know, I don't have anything to live for. I'm gonna 
I'm going, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to follow any kind of moral code. Um, and, and I think it took me many years to build up a different kind of moral compass, um, you know, that didn't have as much to do with, with sexuality or, you know, swearing or drinking or smoking or all those things, <laughs> but had a lot to do with how, how I treated people, you know, mm. and how I treated myself. And I think, yeah, like you said, that's, it, it, we underestimate the time that it will take to craft that for ourselves when mm. for so long we've been following someone else's moral compass. Yeah. And just to give yourself time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, I guess before you go, like, what are you working on now? What, what's the next thing for you? Yeah, so I have a few projects. Um, I, I'm working on actually a novel right now, which is, oh, I was which ask is a you. new space for me. Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, now that I have this book under my belt, um, I'm, I, I'm a little bit more confident, you know, in, in writing and it takes a lot of, you know, a different kind of faith to <laughs> to come to a blank page and try to create a new world. But it's been it's been really fun. So I'm I'm just at the beginning process of that. Um, I'm also doing a lot of um, creative writing teaching. Mm. Um, so I do some online classes and some in person classes here in my city of Houston. Um, yeah, so it's 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 a fun place to be, and I'm I'm really really enjoying the process too of, you know, doing podcasts like this and hearing from folks who have had similar journeys. So if folks are interested in, in, in sharing their story, um, my contact information is on my website, jessicawillbanks.com. And, and I'd really love to hear from readers who have had, had similar experiences. That's great. Thank you so much. And I, I know, um, many people will check out your website and, and, uh, maybe sign up for one of your classes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brian. This has been such a pleasure. Yeah, pleasure to talk to you as well. Thank you so much for spending this portion of your day with me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jessica Wilbanks, and I really hope that you will buy her book and read it, When I Spoke in Tongues, A Story of Faith and Its Loss. I really enjoyed uh, reading it myself. Uh, I read every word, and it took me a bit longer than um, it often does because I really enjoyed the prose as well as the narrative. Um, so check it out. You won't be disappointed. If you want to stay in touch with everything we're doing at Life After God, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org and sign up for our newsletter. You can also subscribe to all of our social media channels right from the website. Thank you again to those of you who support Life After God every month. If you want to become a member, please visit patreon.com slash lifeaftergod where you can make a monthly recurring donation of any amount that you like. Join me in two weeks for the next episode. Until then, I'm your host, Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. 